food system that results in communities of color suffering from some of the highest rates of heart disease and diabetes of all time. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 198. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Welcome, welcome, veggie lovers, to an episode of Veggie Doctor Radio. Well, this time we're doing something a little bit different. I am going to share with you a presentation that I did for the Black Health Matters Conference. So this is an annual conference that is organized by the Harvard Undergraduate Black Health Advocates, and it was virtual this year. And they invited me to talk on the topic of nourishing from within, Black veganism as a tool for justice. I'm going to be honest with you, when they first asked me, I'm like, I'm not sure if I'm the best person to talk about this. It's not my area of expertise. I'm not an expert on food justice and social justice issues per se, but it did push me out of my comfort zone. I ended up doing a lot of reading and a lot of research on this topic. And I feel like my presentation was informative. There's probably other experts that would do a better job than me, but I wanted to share it with you because I felt like some of the stuff I learned is very valuable information and is probably going to shift your paradigm a little bit and the way that we think about food and how it affects the health of people, particularly people of color. So in this presentation, I do focus on health specifically and human health. I'm not focusing on animal justice or animal health. That is a whole separate talk that deserves its own focus, okay? So this one, I'm particularly talking about human health and specifically for black people and people of color in the United States, okay? So I'm gonna talk about the burden of disease. I'm going to talk about the origins of soul food and the Southern diet, social determinants of health, food insecurity, and some things that are very counterintuitive about food insecurity that are very interesting. Going to define some terms like food apartheid, food deserts, and food swamps, and why the term food apartheid is more in favor than food deserts and food swamps. Going to talk about the complexities of our food system, concentrated animal feeding operations, the health issues that agricultural workers in the animal industry face, also the waste pollution and environmental racism that people of color face. And then I'm gonna talk about things that you hear me talk about all the time, which is why eating more whole foods matters, what the difference is between a plant-based diet and veganism. And so some of this stuff you've definitely heard before, but it's never bad to review it. And then I'm just going to end with what are the things that we can do now? Point out some 
areas that you may want to go to for further research and to learn more about these topics. But this is a recording and it is a talk that I specifically gave to for this conference. And so there's gonna be, I'm gonna be answering questions at the end. So I hope that you enjoy this. If you like hearing things like this, and I will be more deliberate about in the future about asking for the recordings when I do talks in you know different locations and events, because maybe it's something that you'd like to hear. Thank you all for being here and for your energy, enthusiasm, having an open heart and open mind. I know these topics, some of them can be really hard and heavy, but I sincerely hope that you will learn something new from my presentation and leave with a sense of empowerment, not a sense of heaviness. My presentation is entitled Nourishing from Within Black Veganism as a Tool for Justice. So I'm going to present to you the issues and challenges that Black people are facing with their health and well-being, why it might be occurring, and how we might be able to begin to tackle these problems with our food choices. Then I'm going to finish off with some hopeful data and leave you with some resources so that you can hit the ground running. I also want to add that this presentation is going to be focused on human health and well-being and nutrition, because that's my area of expertise and passion, but non-human animal welfare and how it relates to human oppression is also a very important topic and also very relevant to human justice. So intersectional veganism is discussed by many black vegan activists. At the end of this talk, I'm going to provide you with a list of some of these activists. And if this is something that you're interested in exploring more, then you can follow them to learn more about that topic. All right, so let's go ahead and get started. So let's start with the sobering statistics. The COVID-19 pandemic has really highlighted some major disparities in health and healthcare and how we experience it in this country. Unfortunately, Black people are two and a half times more likely to be hospitalized and almost twice as likely to die from COVID-19 compared to non-Hispanic whites. But it's not just COVID. Heart disease is the most common chronic illness in our country, but people of color suffer from it most. Around 47% of non-Hispanic Blacks over the age of 20 are living with cardiovascular disease. Elevated blood pressure leads to other chronic conditions, such as increased risk of stroke and chronic kidney disease, and Black people have the highest prevalence of hypertension, with 42% of the Black population over the age of 20 having elevated blood pressure. Black people have the highest rate of death from heart disease in the United States, and like I said, cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death for Black people in this country. Every year, 50,000 Black women die of cardiovascular disease. Remember, these are grandmothers, mothers, daughters, sisters, and aunts. They are loved, valued, and needed, and they are dying 50,000 per year. Black people have the second highest rate of diabetes right behind Hispanic Americans with 19.6% of the black population over the age of 20 having diabetes. So that's about one in five black people over the age of 20. That means that many of you know somebody that has diabetes. It's very, very common, but it's not just physical health. Mental health conditions are also highly prevalent in the black community. One survey found that 16% of black and African Americans report having at least one one mental illness. 
So chronic disease has a significant impact on quality of life and financial security. It causes significant stress. It affects and touches many families and people themselves that are affected by chronic disease. They're not going to have the well-being they desire. They're not going to have the energy and the enthusiasm to advocate for themselves, to advocate for the life that they want to live, for to fight for their rights. So this is really important to consider this. But let's talk about and let's think about why. Why is this happening? Why are Black people and people of color being so heavily affected by chronic disease? So many people have been led to believe that people of color experience disease and the disease burden largely because of genetics. But this dismisses the great complexity that underlies disease development and progression. Yes, genetics may play a role in disease development and progression, but that's not the whole story. Let's talk about food. (laughs) So our food choices have a big effect on our chronic disease risk and development. Dr. Columbus Batiste and Dr. Eric Walsh created a project called the Slave Food Project in which they discussed the implications of the Southern diet. So the Southern diet evolved from slave food, but they talk about how it evolved from slave food to modern day slave food and that people of color are trapped in this cycle. Soul food is a style of cooking that originated during the period of slavery, and it is based on using lower or unwanted cuts of meat. It's typically high in fat, salt, and sugar, and it's low in fresh fruits and vegetables. Many people feel particularly attached to these foods because it represents their culture and their heritage. They may view them as comfort foods, but these foods are perpetuating chronic disease. So in a sense, these foods continue to keep people bound in slavery. But it's not just food. We have to take into account social determinants of health. So these are conditions in the places where people live, learn, work, and play that affect a wide range of health and quality of life risks and outcomes. So these include things like healthcare access and quality, education access and quality, the social and community context, economic stability, and the neighborhood and the built environment. So obviously it's complex, is multifactorial, but interestingly, food is a factor in many of these components. So think about the neighborhood and the built environment. Think about access to clean water, food quality and access, but even pollution and air quality, those are affected by food. And I'm going to explain to you why. Food insecurity is a massive problem in our country. And I definitely want to touch on this briefly because we can't ignore it. So what is food insecurity? It's defined as the disruption of food intake or eating patterns because of lack of money and other resources. And in 2014, 17.4 million US households were food insecure secure at some point during the year. After the pandemic, right after the pandemic hit, they did a study and they found that there were some neighborhoods where food insecurity increased by 80% as a result of the pandemic. But what's really interesting is that food insecurity doesn't necessarily cause hunger. Hunger is a potential outcome of food insecurity, but not all people that are food insecure are experiencing hunger. And I point this out because many people believe that people that are experiencing chronic food insecurity will look a certain way, but you can't judge a book by its cover. What's counterintuitive and heartbreaking is that one study found that children from food insecure households, they tend to be larger bodied, have more difficulty regulating their hunger and satiety. They tend to eat more snacks and 
And unfortunately, they have mothers that restrict their food intake more than children from food secure households. So it's ironic that food insecurity affects body size in the opposite way that one would predict. And this is especially true for black mothers, which leads to shame and stigma on top of what racial discrimination they may face as a person of color. So these are stressors I want you to be thinking about and considering that a lot of people may not even realizing are happening. Okay, so there's many terms that have been used to describe neighborhoods that have less access to healthy foods. U.S. activist Dara Cooper describes food apartheid as systemic destruction of black self-determination to control one's food, hypersaturation of destructive foods and predatory marketing, and blatantly discriminatory corporate controlled food system that results in communities of color suffering from some of the highest rates of heart disease and diabetes of all time. Food deserts are areas, usually in urban areas, that have difficulty accessing fresh or quality foods. And food swamps are areas in where there is an abundance of ultra processed foods, fast food restaurants, convenience stores, and liquor stores. A study in Detroit found that people living in low income, predominantly black neighborhoods travel an average of 1.1 miles farther to the closest supermarket than people living in low income, predominantly white neighborhoods. Food swamps and food deserts are more likely to be located in lower income communities and communities of people of color. And one study found that in food swamps, there are four unhealthy choices to every one healthy choice. And the reason I want to describe all of these different terms is because the terms food deserts and food swamps, they're falling out of favor and food apartheid is being more favored as the term to describe these areas. And it's because of what Nina Sevilla writes about food deserts. She said, they are the result of systematic racism and oppression in the form of zoning codes, lending practices, and other discriminatory policies rooted in white supremacy. Using the term desert implies that the lack of healthy and affordable food is somehow naturally occurring and obscures that it is the direct result of racially discriminatory policies and systematic disinvestment in these communities. So I wanted you to know these terms, what they mean, and why they're important. But our food system is really complex. Access to fresh, quality, nutritious food is of prime importance. But have you stopped to really think about where your food comes from? In the United States, we have nearly 330 million Americans to feed. That's a lot of moving parts. And our demand for meat is already large and it's growing. So I don't want to shock you too much, but in the United States, each person consumes 264 pounds of meat per year, 264 pounds of meat per person per year. This doesn't even include the 655 pounds of dairy and 286 pounds of eggs that each person consumes per year. So just think about that. That is a lot of animals to raise and slaughter to meet that demand which brings me to CAFOs. So 99% of animals come from factory farms. CAFOs are concentrated animal feeding operations. So this means that they have greater than 1000 animal units housed and fed in a confined area. And just so you know, one animal unit is a thousand pounds. So that's a lot of animals that are kept in one place and raised specifically 
to feed humans. Most chickens, pigs, and cows are raised in CAFOs in the modern day. So it's not these idyllic little family run farms where all the animals are running free and playing. No, they are stuck in these very enclosed buildings and they are raised only to the point where it's time to slaughter them to consume them. CAFOs harm environmental and human health because of the massive amount of waste generated by each farm. Manure can range between 2,800 and 1.6 million tons per year. Manure, animal poop. Large farms can produce more waste than some U.S. cities. And just think about a city and how it's run with plumbing and septic systems and water treatment systems. This isn't happening in a CAFO. And these CAFOs are creating more waste than some cities. That's urine feces, and blood of animals. It's just pouring out of these places minute by minute. But farm workers may suffer the most from this reality. The people that work on these farms are greatly affected and become victims of this seemingly unstoppable machine to produce meat, dairy, and eggs for a growing population. More than half of all farm workers are people of color and 80% of frontline workers in the animal slaughtering and processing industry are people of color, 80%. These workers tend to have less education, live below the poverty line, have children, higher rates of being uninsured, and they get injured and sick. Injury and illness rates are two times higher than other workers on average. They tend to develop chronic conditions like acute and chronic bronchitis from the air quality, which is as high as 30% of farm workers. Other chronic ailments include headaches, eye irritation, nausea, weakness, and chest tightness. They can also become carriers of antibiotic resistant bacteria like MRSA and may be exposed to infections from the animals they are working with, including viruses. Some studies have found increased rates of some cancers in these farm workers. They also experience the psychological effects, especially those that are working in the slaughter industry. So we've seen all of these different health effects, adverse health effects to farm workers. What about the communities? How are the surrounding communities affected by all this waste? In 1982, Benjamin Chavez defined environmental racism as racial discrimination in environmental policymaking, the enforcement of regulations and laws, the deliberate targeting of communities of color for toxic waste facilities, the official sanctioning of the life-threatening presence of poisons and pollutants in our communities, and the history of excluding people of color from leadership of the ecology movements. So this picture that I have on the slide right now, this is an aerial shot of a CAFO. So as you can see, I'm pointing here on the screen, these are the buildings that the animals are housed. And this red thing right here, this is a manure lagoon. So basically this is filled with animal waste, but it's more than just that. There's 150 pathogens in manure that can impact human health. Of course, it has bacteria like E. coli, but it also contains animal blood. It produces toxins such as ammonia, nitrogen, phosphorus, growth hormones, antibiotics, and the chemicals that they use in farming operations like copper sulfate. The most common method to dispose of manure is ground application. So it's either kept in these lagoons or it's sprayed onto the ground or sprayed into the air. So just imagine all of these animals 
creating these millions of tons of waste. And instead of being treated like it would in a regular city, it's being spread on the ground or sprayed into the air. So problems happen. It leaks into the water system. It contaminates the air. The air quality is so bad that it increases the risk of health problems and people living nearby. Of course, these CAFOs tend to be located in rural areas and in economically disadvantaged neighborhoods. And they're closer to schools that have children that are people of color. So higher percentages of children of color. The CAFO odors can be smelled as much as five to six miles away. And these odors have found to cause negative mood states, depression, anger, neuropsychiatric abnormalities, impaired balance and memory. Like I mentioned before, the manure can also contain antibiotics and FYI, 70% of all antibiotics and related drugs used in the US are given to factory farmed animals. 70%, 7-0 of all the antibiotics used in the US are given to animals. When we do this, it can cause problems. And there's evidence that this is leading to antibiotic resistant microbes. And just in case any of us have forgotten, let us also remember that the microbes that cause pandemics often the majority of the time originate in animals. And it is much more likely to happen in the situation where you have a large number of animals in a small space, such as in factory farms farming and CAFOs. Whew, that was a lot. So as you can see, our food choices really do matter, not just for our own health, not just for chronic disease prevention, but also for the health of our communities. But especially when it comes to chronic disease prevention, what we eat is the most important factor that we can control. But the good news is it's more simple than you think. Eat more whole plant foods. And here is my friendly emoji <laughs> trying to encourage you to eat more whole plant foods. Before I go on to tell you the benefits of eating whole plant foods, I do want to take a moment to define a couple of terms. So let's start with veganism. What is veganism? So the vegan society defines veganism as a philosophy and way of living, which seeks to exclude as far as is possible and practicable all forms of exploitation of and cruelty to animals for food, clothing, or any other purpose, and by extension, promotes development and use of animal-free alternatives for the benefit of animals, humans, and the environment. In dietary terms, it denotes the practice of dispensing with all products derived wholly or partly from animals. So veganism is a philosophy, it's a belief system, but you don't necessarily have to identify with the ethical and philosophical standpoint of veganism to make a difference in your own health and the health of your communities. And the reason I say that is because I know that some people get uncomfortable with labels. They get uncomfortable if something doesn't completely align with their beliefs. So if that's you, don't adopt that as a label, just start looking for ways to eat less animals and eat more plants. What is a whole food plant-based diet? So you may have heard of the term plant-based. It can mean different things to different people. But when I say plant-based, I'm talking about a diet that is composed exclusively of plants. And a whole food plant-based diet is one in which there is an emphasis on whole plant foods. What are plants? 
fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, and nuts and seeds. And as you can see, this is a way of eating that is vibrant, abundant, and delicious. This is the physician's committee for responsible medicine power plate. As you can see on your plate, an abundance of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, also nuts and seeds are included in that. But don't start to panic, take a deep breath to start deriving health benefits and make a difference in our environment. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. But if you're currently eating the standard American diet, you're going to want to start to make some changes to eat more whole plant foods. And the reason is because the standard American diet is composed of only 10% whole plant foods. The rest is animal products and processed foods. The reason that animal products are a problem is because they are high in saturated fat. They're the only source of dietary cholesterol and they are devoid of fiber. Fiber is not present in anything that comes from an animal. They're also low in nutrient density. The standard American diet is high in fat, sugar, salt, additives, and very low in fiber, antioxidants, and phytonutrients. Before I go on, I want to help you understand the difference between a whole food and processed foods. I don't want to demonize one or the other, but I want you to understand how they're different because whole foods or foods in their more whole form are going to be more health promoting and there can be risks associated with processed foods. So let's start with an apple. This is a whole food. You can go to an apple tree, pick the apple and start eating it right away. It is packed with fiber, antioxidants and phytonutrients. It's unchanged. Nothing is added. Nothing is taken away. Now we have applesauce. So imagine you took that apple and you just cut it up and you put it in a blender. You didn't peel it or anything. This is considered minimally processed. So you're not really adding anything or taking anything away, but you may alter it. You may cook it. That's actually considered minimally processed. So a lot of the foods that we eat, we may call it whole foods, but actually they're minimally processed, which is okay. It still retains a lot of the benefits. Now let's move on to apple juice. This is considered a moderately processed food. So in apple juice, you're starting to remove health promoting components of the food. So in the case of apple juice, you're taking away the peel, you're taking away the pulp. And in this case that removes vitamins and fiber or a moderately processed food may have things added like added fats, sugars, or salt. And this can affect how our body reacts to this food, which is how it can affect our health. All right. And let's go on to the last one. So we have apple, applesauce, apple juice. Who knows what this is? If you grew up in the eighties, like me, I mean, they still sell it, but I pretty much lived on cereal when I was a kid. This is apple jack cereal, <laughs> and this is considered an ultra processed food. Ultra processed foods are generally made in a factory. The way I like to have people think about it is, can you make this at home yourself. If you can't make it at home, that's an ultra processed food. You're going to need special machines and equipment to make this food. And unfortunately, ultra processed foods, they have a lot of things that are changed. So generally things are removed. So in the case of this food, we're removing fiber, vitamins, minerals, and then we're adding things like fat, sugar, salt, preservatives, artificial colors, and flavors. So it would benefit our health to make an effort to reduce ultra processed foods. 
like I said, it doesn't have to be all or nothing, but we have to start somewhere. And just so that you can see that Apple Jacks actually does contain a little bit of real apples, but it's like 15 ingredients down on the list right before yellow number six, yellow 50, red 40, and blue one, and a lot of other additives. And so this is an ultra processed food. And guess what? In our country, our children are acquiring 70% of their calories from ultra processed foods, 70%. And it's rising. This is only the most recent study that they did. And they found that it had risen from the previous time they looked at it. So we have a long ways to go. There's a lot of places we can make changes. So let me tell you about the two main reasons why I promote eating more whole plant foods and what I want you to remember. Just keep this really simple in your mind. The first thing is fiber. Okay. Fiber F I B E R. So what is fiber mayoclinic.org describing fiber as roughage or bulk includes parts of plant foods. Your body can't digest or absorb unlike other food components, such as fats, proteins, or carbohydrates, which your body breaks down and absorbs fiber isn't digested by your body. Instead, it passes relatively intact through your stomach, small intestine and colon out of your body. Okay. The way that they describe this, it makes it seem like fiber is inert. It makes it seem like, Oh, it's, there's not much going on with fiber. You just eat it and you poop it right out. But fiber is so important. In fact, fiber is my favorite F word. So look at all of these different reasons that fiber benefits our health. Everybody knows that fiber helps you poop. So it improves intestinal regularity. So that's important. You know, everybody wants to make sure you go regularly, but another thing that it does is that it helps remove toxins, excess hormones, and cholesterols. And it does this by the help of your liver. And that's the reason why you may have heard things like oatmeal can help decrease your cholesterol. Oatmeal isn't a special plant food. All the whole plant foods have fiber in them and they have soluble and insoluble fiber. And it is this soluble fiber that is binding with these excess hormones, cholesterols, and helps you excrete it with the waste whenever you go to the bathroom. So that's how it works. That's a very important mechanism of fiber. It increases your satiety and regulates your appetite. So fiber combines with water creates bulk and helps you feel full. So at the end of the day, you're actually not consuming as many calories for the volume that you're consuming. It feels really satisfying. But what's really important is that it helps feed your healthy gut bacteria. So that microbiome, and these are the good bacteria. These are not the bad bacteria that we're finding in the manure fields. These are the bacteria that are working symbiotically with us and helping promote our health. It also helps regulate blood sugar and improves insulin sensitivity. And unfortunately, most Americans, including children are way fiber deficient. So whenever we talk about deficiencies in this country, I want to remind everybody that our biggest deficiency is fiber. So a little quiz here, a little pop quiz, which food category of the ones below have the highest fiber content? Is it fruits, vegetables, eggs, or beans? What do you think? Which one has the highest fiber content per serving? The correct answer is beans. Beans are amazing. I'm a bean pusher for sure. I want more people to learn how to eat beans and incorporate beans into their meals and their snacks. Beans on average have seven grams of fiber per serving. So they're the biggest bang for your buck when it comes to fiber, but don't worry 
all whole plant foods have fiber. So you can't go wrong with just including more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, and nuts and seeds into your diet. Okay. Reason number two, why I want you to eat more whole plant foods. So reason number one was fiber. Reason number two, nutrient density, antioxidants, phytonutrients, vitamins, and minerals. Every day we learn how important all of these molecules are in helping promote our health, all the different things that they do. And antioxidants specifically, they help fight free radical damage and free radical damage can lead to chronic diseases and not just things like cancer, but our heart disease and diabetes and stroke and autoimmune diseases. And we need vitamins and minerals for the proper function of our body. And we can derive all of this from whole plant foods every day. It seems like we're learning about all the different benefits that fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, and seeds have on us because each different plant has different vitamins and minerals and benefits. So that's why it's important. And why we say a lot as healthcare practitioners to eat from the rainbow, eat a variety of plant foods to get those benefits. Like I said, we can get them everywhere. All whole plant foods have antioxidants and they're really important for our health. But I'm wondering if you know of these, which food category has the highest antioxidant concentration? Is it beans, leafy greens, berries, or herbs and spices? Which one do you think has the greatest antioxidant concentration? This one's tricky. It stumps a lot of people. The answer is actually herbs and spices that has your biggest bang for your buck. And it's because spices, obviously they're concentrated. So they're concentrated sources of antioxidants and herbs too. They're just really concentrated sources. But like I said, don't worry, don't worry about the tiny details. Just eat more whole plant foods. They all have fiber. They all have antioxidants and phytonutrients. You can't go wrong. So we know that all whole plant foods have fiber. We know they have antioxidants, but they also have all the other macronutrients too. So those are micronutrients. They also have macronutrients, carbohydrates, fats, and guess what? Protein. <laughs> so you don't have to worry as long as you're deriving sufficient, adequate calories from whole plant foods, you are getting sufficient protein because it's present in all whole plant foods. I mean, it couldn't be better. They're like the perfect package. We've got all our macronutrients, we've got fiber, and we got all our micronutrients. It's amazing. Okay, so given all of this information, I want to ask a very important question. We have lots of evidence that eating more whole plant foods can prevent the onset of chronic disease, but does a plant-based diet have the potential to reverse disease such as heart disease and diabetes? What do you think? A, yes, it's possible, or B, there's no way that's possible. I hope you've guessed that the answer is yes, yes. A plant-based diet has the potential to reverse heart disease and diabetes in someone that already has these conditions. It can cause plaque re regression in heart disease. It can normalize insulin sensitivity, and it can certainly help people reduce or eliminate medications for many chronic conditions. And that is such great news. So here are some studies specifically in black Americans in the Adventist two health study, black and African-American members that were vegan or vegetarians were less likely to have high blood pressure, diabetes, and high cholesterol compared to non-vegetarians. Specifically, they had a 44% decreased odds of hypertension, 52% decreased risk of diabetes, 58% decreased risk of high 
total cholesterol and 45% decreased risk for high LDL cholesterol. Another study showed that black people following a vegan diet had a 70% decreased risk of developing diabetes compared to non-vegetarians. And there's multiple studies showing this, which is why some people have said that one of the populations that could benefit the most from adopting a plant-based diet is black, black people. So this is really, really important to know that we have this evidence specifically in people of color to show that it can decrease the risk of chronic diseases, which we had assumed, like I said earlier in a presentation, well, it's all genetic. When we say things like that, it's all genetic. It leads us to think there's nothing we can do. It's disempowering. It leads people to think, well, I'm just going to keep eating all the soul food because there's nothing I can do. I'm just going to get diabetes. I'm just going to die of a heart attack. Well, as you can see, there's evidence to show that that does not have to be the case. They did a study where they tested a five-week intervention with plant-based meals. So basically they had 44 volunteers and they gave them the food, okay? They gave them these plant-based meals and they found a 19% reduction in atherosclerotic risk in African-Americans. And they derived that from... 14% reduction in LDL and a 6% reduction in blood pressure. Like I said before, African-Americans have high rates of high blood pressure, high rates of heart disease. So imagine this was just a five-week intervention and it showed this reduction. Imagine what could happen if it's carried out consistently, but there's more. Remember, we're living in this pandemic thing that's claiming lots of lives, but there's hope. This is only one of several studies that found that consuming a plant-based diet may be protective. So they surveyed healthcare workers in six different countries, and they found that those that followed a predominantly or exclusively plant-based diet had a 73% decreased risk of developing moderate to severe COVID-19 infection, 73% decreased risk. That is huge. Okay. Many people mistakenly believe that decreasing or eliminating animal products is going to lead to restriction and deprivation, but the opposite is true. Eating plants is about abundance, not deprivation. Did you know that there are over 50,000 edible plants in this world? 50,000. Think about how many animals we eat. I can count it on two hands. I cannot count 50,000 on two hands. That is a lot of diversity. That's a lot of abundance. There's thousands of varieties of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, and seeds. So many things that we can taste and we can eat. But here's some interesting information. The World Health Organization has deemed processed meats as class one carcinogens. You may have heard this. So basically what that means is that we know for sure that processed meats causes colon cancer. Okay. Unfortunately, in the United States, we eat a lot of processed meat. So this includes things like hot dogs, lunch meat, sausage, bacon. Remember that these foods are high in saturated fat, cholesterol, and devoid of fiber. Another statistic when it comes to the health of black Americans is that colon cancer is the second leading cause of death among African Americans. And they also experience higher rates than white people when it comes to colon cancer. So that's something to pay attention to. Well, they did this really cool study from the University of Pittsburgh in 2015, where they actually had African-Americans swap diets with Africans 
that were eating a traditional African diet. They only did this for two weeks. Now, the African diet obviously was high in fiber. It had a lot of plants and the African-American diet was the standard American diet, which was, as you can see in the bottom picture, like I said before, very low in fiber, high in saturated fat. So what they found after only two weeks of swapping these diets is that their gut health, the gut health of these two different groups radically changed. So they found significant alterations in their gut bacteria and the production of postbiotics. So postbiotics are basically what the microbes in your gut produce. And these postbiotics can be really helpful to decrease our risk of chronic disease. So again, can you imagine if there could be such a dramatic and radical change in just two weeks, what would happen if we were eating this way consistently? Do you think that black people would be willing to make this type of change to their diet? So maybe, you know, a vegan, maybe you've never heard of veganism. Maybe you've never heard of a plant-based diet, but guess what? Many black people already are eating this way. Black women are the fastest growing segment of the vegan population. That is super exciting. 8% of African-Americans endorse following a vegan or vegetarian diet compared to only 3% of the overall U.S. population. And a Gallup poll from January 2020 found that 31% of non-white Americans were decreasing their meat consumption compared to only 19% of white Americans. Tracy McCorder founded the 10 million black vegan women movement with the goal to help 1 million black women per year for 10 years to transition to a vegan or plant-based diet. So on their website, they said, imagine the impact on ourselves, our families, our communities, and our world when 10 million black women go vegan. So as part of this program, they have this 21 day vegan fresh start and the results have been astounding. Survey data for more than 600 participants found that 67% improved their general health, 61% ate more vegetables, 37% lowered their blood pressure, 23% lowered their cholesterol, and 36% gained mental clarity. Remember, this is just a 21-day challenge. That is just three weeks. These changes can happen so quickly, and you can start feeling better so much faster. Again, maybe you don't know anybody that's vegan or eating a plant-based diet, but there are many black celebrities and influencers that could serve as a role model. So these are some famous black vegans, Venus and Serena Williams. They adopted a plant-based diet for autoimmune issues and had great results. Tabitha Brown was able to reverse her chronic debilitating migraines. Carl Lewis went plant-based decades ago for athletic performance. And so there's lots of people out there that are doing this and having great results. Like I said earlier in the talk, there's also many black vegan activists actively working to make a difference in the world. So on my podcast, Veggie Doctor Radio, I have interviewed EA Baco, Tracy McWhorter, and Omawale Adewale. And so if you want to check those out, definitely go to Veggie Doctor Radio, but follow these activists on Instagram or on social media if you want to learn more from them.
There's also dozens of amazing black recipe creators. These are just a few. Instagram is a great place to find amazing, plantastic recipes. Once you start following a few, Instagram is going to lead you to more. But believe me, there's not enough time to eat all of the delicious food. Speaking of delicious food, there's no shortage of Black-owned vegan restaurants. So if you want to scan this QR code, it leads you to a list of Black-owned vegan restaurants and wasn't even able to put some because there was just so many to choose from. And you can start exploring and visiting some of these restaurants so that you can experience delicious food that is packed with fiber, antioxidants, and bursting with flavor. Okay, so let's get practical. What can you start doing today. Go vegan or adopt a predominantly plant-based diet. Like I said, if it really scares you, you do not have to go all or nothing. You can take baby steps, but just start eating more plants. And this is how you do it. Emphasize what you put into your diet, not what you take out. So if it makes you really scared and nervous to think about, oh my gosh, I, I could never give up cheese or, you know, I can't live without my ice cream, then don't think about it that way. Think about how can I eat more fruits? How can I eat more vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, and seeds, beans, especially because believe me, that's a huge deficiency in our country. How can you learn to integrate more lentils, split peas and beans, chickpeas, my favorite into your meals and snacks. Try to integrate some whole plant food into every meal and snack and aim to get to at least 75%. Like I said, it doesn't have to be all or nothing, but just try it out. See how it goes for you. And remember, make it simple, not complicated. And this is the way to keep eating simple. So one thing that you can do, follow some of these recipe creators. There's plenty of free resources online. There's blogs, there's social media. Pick nine new, easy, flexible recipes that you think that you would enjoy and you can rotate among your meals. So that's one strategy. The other strategy is to take six meals you already eat regularly and veganize them. So say you love to eat pasta, tacos. We do Taco Tuesday every Tuesday at my house, sandwiches, pizzas. You can veganize all of those and you can emphasize whole plant foods in all of those meals. So start swapping animal products for whole plant foods, beans, tofu, tempeh. Those are all great ways to replace meat. And later on, I'm going to give you some resources to give you more ideas because most people just aren't familiar with how to do it. Once you learn how to do it, it's so much easier than you think. Experiment with different vegetables, beans, and whole grains. Remember what I said earlier, there's 50 thousand edible plants. There are so many to choose from. There's so much variety and there's so much to explore. Definitely find your favorite blogger cookbook. If you like to go simple, there's plenty of recipe creators that make it super simple for you. If you like gourmet, there's plenty of that, believe me. And don't be afraid to use convenience foods. Use frozen vegetables and fruits. Use canned or frozen legumes, frozen or shelf-stable grains. There's lots of options now to make this easy, quick, and delicious, but remember, packed with fiber and antioxidants. One of the first objections that I hear is that it's more expensive to eat whole plant foods. Now we do have to acknowledge that there are people in places with less access to these foods. We addressed that later or earlier when I talked about these areas with uh, food apartheid and food insecurity, but increased cost is not necessary, especially now with the price of meat rising, eating whole plant foods may actually decrease your grocery bill. So this was actually, I got this 
before the pandemic, when I made this slide for another presentation. So I know it's probably even more expensive than that. But I just looked at the grocery store that I shop at ground beef was between four and $8 a pound dried beans, one to two fifty a pound, a loaf of white bread, 89 cents, a pound of rolled oats, 89 cents rolled oats. I'm going to say even is more filling than white bread. A 10 ounce family size Frito Lays, $3.49. A pound of potatoes, 79 cents. Apple juice for $3.99. A pound of apples for $1.29. And also, studies show that when it comes to eating this way, in taste, it is equally acceptable and sustainable. And remember, you just have to give your taste buds a couple of weeks to start to adapt. And you're going to start weaning off of some of those hyper palatable ultra processed foods to more whole plant foods, and you're going to love it. All right. So number two, stop supporting factory farming. But remember, like I said earlier, 99% of animals raised for meat are located in factory farms, 99%. So I guess if you live close to that 1%, if you want to continue to eat meat, then you can use that as an option. But when you eat meat, by default, you are supporting factory farming because 99% of these animals are raised on factory farms. Remember the massive amount of pollution, waste, health effects, especially for people of color. And we didn't even begin to touch on how it affects the animals. So basically number two is also to just go back to number one and eat more whole plant foods. And then finally, support legislation and policies that increase access to fresh foods to people in all communities. We still have a lot of work to do in this area. There is much can be done that increases food sovereignty for communities and we can't ignore it. But another way to advocate is to help educate other people, teach them how our choices represent our voices. We can rise up by resisting to take part in habits and behaviors that affect our health and well-being, and it can start with you. I want to leave you with some helpful resources. Eric Adams, who is the current mayor of New York City, is vegan and eats a plant-based diet. I interviewed him on my podcast, but he has a really great book called Healthy at Last. It's a very quick read. It has evidence-based information in there and his amazing story. There's also this amazing free guide. It's called the African-American Vegan Starter Guide. You can find it, africanamericanveganstarterguide.com. It's also made by Tracy McWhorter. And there's some wonderful nonprofits. I already mentioned the Slave Food Project by Dr. Columbus Batiste, who I also interviewed on my podcast very recently, actually, and Dr. Eric Walsh. And they explore the role of racism as a unique form of stress and the weaponization of food and the creation of health disparities. Like I mentioned already, the 10 Million Black Vegan Women uh, Project, Food Empowerment Project, and the Afro-Vegan Society has lots of great resources, and they provide resources specifically to help support and help people in marginalized communities transition to vegan living. I love these documentaries, Forks Over Knives, What the Health, Game Changers, Cowspiracy, and They're Trying to Kill Us is a recent one that also touches on the hip hop influence and veganism. But if you would rather watch something and learn that way, this is a great place to start. Here are my references. And this is a download that you can go to dryami.com forward slash black health. You want to scan the QR code and it summarizes everything in this talk and it has clickable links for the resources. So if you would like that, go to dryami.com forward slash black health. And I have lots of other free resources like how to replace meat in your diet, how to replace dairy, how to replace egg, eating out guides, shopping lists, all kinds of amazing resources. 
If you're on the beginning of this journey, or if you know somebody who's curious, this is a great place to send them dryami.com forward slash free. I also have my podcast, Veggie Doctor Radio, which has lots of resources. And I wrote a book. This is specifically written for parents that want to know how and what to feed their kids. I'm on social media, primarily Instagram, and I am happy to entertain any questions. Thank you so much for y'all's attention. Amazing job, Dr. Yami. This was such an informative presentation. There are so many like statistics and information that I had no idea existed. Um, we can move on to the Q&A portion. We have some great questions in the chat. Um, the first one being, what are methods a young person can use to engage the older, meaning 40 to 75 plus black community to use plant-based foods as a tool for healing metabolism diseases? Yes, that's such a great question. I, I'm in that category, y'all. I'm 42. So, <laughs> but um I think, and and like I was talking to you earlier, Kira, we have to be able to find and engage each individual's why. So for older people, a lot of older people, especially in the black community, they're already going to start experiencing health problems because you can see it's so prevalent for people that are starting to experience health problems. They may be motivated by the information that it's possible for them to decrease their dependence on medications, or it may be possible to even reverse their condition. So we don't want to make any guarantees because everybody's body is different, but it's worth telling them about it or asking them whether they would be open to learning about it. That might be a good way to start because we don't want to just be pushy in, in life, but like, you know, I have some of this information. I'm wondering if you would be open to me telling you a little bit about what I learned from this talk that I went to recently, uh, and it might help you with your diabetes or your high blood pressure, your high cholesterol. And for a lot of older people, they're engaged with that. Why? Because they're starting to face their mortality. They want to stay around longer. They want to be there for their grandkids. They want to be there for their families. So I think for that population specifically, I would look for that. Why? And for many people, it's probably going to be their health. Mm -hmm. Great response. Um, the next question is, how can veganism be useful to low-income communities in food deserts and or food swamps to nourish from within? So exactly everything I said, like I said before, because we are faced with these chronic conditions and I'm a pediatrician, y'all. So I see kids and when kids are eating the standard American diet and we're eating these ultra processed foods, the diseases start earlier, unfortunately, the high blood pressure, the high cholesterol, they start earlier. And it's taking away joy is taking away well being is taking away longevity. So the form of justice, the way that we are fighting back is by eating healthier so that we can live long, healthier lives and live the lives that we want, not be controlled by the food system or other people's policies. So that's the way that I see it. And, and like I said, there's going to be complexities there because it may be harder to access some of those foods. But once people learn more about it, I think we can start to advocate for changes to help increase access to those foods. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, now, a lot of people are curious about your own vegan journey. Um, what were your motivations for going vegan and how long have you been vegan? So I have been vegan and plant-based 10 and a half years now. And I was actually just incredibly curious. I was reading a book called Born to Run. And in it, it talked about the native Indian 
population called Athata Umada and a vegan ultra marathoner called Scott Jurek. And I just, it, it was just very radical to me at the point at that time in my life. And I thought, how is it possible that these native Mexicans living in the desert, that they run for fun, like it's part of their culture. They run long distances for fun, can not only subsist on plants, but thrive on plants. It just clashed against everything I had learned in medical school. So I decided to just try it for 30 days. I cured my constipation, chronic constipation, three decades of chronic constipation, which I thought was genetic in four days. I felt great. And of course that just started the wheels turning. I read the books. I watched the documentaries and at the end of the 30 days, there was no going back for me. And then over the next month, I learned more about it for my kids and my kids are plant-based vegan as well. And now it's been 10 and a half years. Amazing. Such a long time, such an inspiring story. I feel like a lot of people start off from, um, based on like reading these books and watching documentaries and they're so informative and really yes. useful. Um, one question I have is how you've incorporated this sort of vegan activism into your career as a pediatrician. Um, and if you sort of like, inform your, your patients about it. Um, yeah, things related to that. You can't shut me up about it, <laughs> as you can see. So, um, And so I had to have other platforms as well. I definitely talked to my patients about it. And, you know, I'm not a pushy person, except for beans, but I'm not, my personality type is not pushy. So I'm going to talk about it in a way that's going to benefit my patients and their health. When I see places where eating animals, especially things like dairy and lots of processed meats are hurting my patients. I'm not going to be quiet about it. I'm going to speak up about it. And I'm going to talk to my patients always about the importance of eating more fiber and eating more whole plant foods. But I also have other platforms that I can use when I want to teach and educate. I have my podcast. I have social media. I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of speaking. And so these are my talents and the ways that I can communicate and how I spread the word and educate lots of people, because you just never know who you're going to reach. And even if it's just one person, I am telling you, it's a ripple effect because I have had, have had people that I never thought would adopt this way of eating. They were just quiet and they were observing. Then they changed. And then two of their friends changed and two or three of their friends changed. And it becomes this ripple effect. And we can do that specifically by serving as role models, speaking about it, but also, you know, being positive, not being overly pushy, because we don't want to turn people off, even though at the beginning, when you first transition, you could feel a lot of anger and, and just you want to be really passionate about it. But as you go on, you learn that uh, being a really pushy, angry person is not the way to help people change. Um, but, you know, it's everybody's journey. <laughs> Yeah, the ripple effect is so true with my own family. It was first my sister, and then I went vegan, and now my little sister's vegetarian. So just Aww. one person, such a huge difference. I love it. You know, um, so we are nearing the end of this presentation. I want to thank you again so much for agreeing to do this. This was so informative, and I really enjoyed um, listening to your presentation and speaking and also um, hearing your answers to these great questions. Um, once again, you can uh, find Dr. Yemi on on her Instagram page and her um, book and websites and all the QR codes that were scanned um, in the presentation, you can visit those. And thank you all so much for attending. I hope you have a lovely day. Thank you. Have a fantastic day, everybody. 
Hey, veggie lover. I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day.